For decades, it was a tradition built in rock. Wow. It's the celebration what up, what up, what up? of humanity. Oh, my God, it's amazing. The best. best. It's you free, and when you dance to it, get you moving. Uh, you know, it got to the point where people wanted real music from real people and real songs from real people. Real people. But somewhere along the way, it became just another casualty of financial restraint. And let's be honest, let's be honest. apathy. Now, now, let's do it. The Mojo Radio Show is bringing it back. Welcome to Rocktober 2019. A 31-day celebration of all things Mojo. From the boardroom to the bedroom. This is Ryan Fox. This is Cal Newport. This is Tate Bush. Hi, this is Ivor Davies from iFound. And it's Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. Plus, all the trimmings you'd expect from the rockingest month on the calendar. Stand by. Rocktober continues now. Hey, everybody, and welcome to week three of Rocktober. How the year is slipping by, our biggest month of the year. Traditionally, Rocktober was a month where rock radio stations all around the world would take the month of October and they'd redo their production, their sound, they'd do big giveaways, have gigs, all sorts of things. It'd be a sort of a random collection of features and fun. And like all good old school concepts that were valued, it got ditched. And so about four seasons ago, the Mojo Radio Show decided to bring back Rocktober. Our Rocktober is about great guests, which we have, great music, which we have, some acoustic sets we have, swag we have, and we also throw in Rocktober Movie Mojo. So it's all that, lots of gold, bit of fun, bit of rock and roll, a little dose of rock, as we say here in the in the studio. Uh, speaking of the studio, is everybody ready to Rocktober and roll? Yep, ready to rock and roll. Of course. As long as it rocks, it's on like Donkey Kong. Like you had to ask the question. That's right. Exactly. Uh, could I just check the sound booth? AP, how are you enjoying Rocktober? How am I enjoying Rocktober? Well, I can tell you now, I'm not. Where's the Brock Commodore? Where's the icy cold cans of Coke in the boot? Nowhere. I think you better repeat the question. <laughs> to kickstart our heart, the beautiful Lola. Did you like what I did there? To kickstart our heart. Oh, so you're just getting all Rocktober on me. Lola, the world's first and only automated podcast studio assistant. Lola... Robbo has done Rocktober Riffs, which is our mojo song list for Rocktober. It's on Spotify. I was out in the weekend. I had it on. There's some kick butt rock in that lot, let me tell you. Can you dive into the Spotify list and play an appropriate song to get us started to kickstart our heart, please, Lola? On the night I arrived, my daddy said, 
What better way to rock than that? Another track that is on that at the start of the album is this one. Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, Galileo, Galileo Figaro. You and your queen. I don't know. I'm starting to think you're turning into a queen. No, I'm turning into Wayne's World. Party on. Excellent. <laughs> Party on, Gaz. Yeah, whatever. Where's my icy cold can of Coke? Party on, AP. Um... <laughs> And the reason why I bring that up is that is our movie of the week. And I found this clip from Mike Myers, Wayne Campbell in Wayne's World, talking about that song, how it came to be, and how he had to fight to get it in the movie. And now it's iconic. In Toronto, (laughs) we'd be uh, driving down the Don Valley Parkway and on uh, Chum FM... um, Bohemian Rhapsody came on, and I was in, I was in a, a, my brother's Corolla that was, had a vomit stain on the side that turned into a, it looked like Elvis as a cameo. It looked like Scarborough Wedgwood, you know. It was just this stain. And Bohemian Rhapsody came on, and my brother pulled over, and then from that moment on, each of us had a Galileo, you know. Oh, if sure. you took somebody's Galileo, 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 you got beat up, you know, basically. Oh, you were assigned one of the four Galileos. Yeah, and then, yeah. I, and then I, uh, I had a chance to be, you know, write and be in a movie, Wayne's World, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, I would love that to be the song. And the studio went, no. And I was like, what do you mean, no? And then they said, we want Guns N' Roses, who I love, but it wasn't something I grew up with. So I f- really fought hard for that to be the song, you know, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, to the point, because I'd never, you know, I'm a bit of not very bright sometimes. I went, I don't want to be in the movie if that's it. And Lauren Michaels was like, let me get this straight. You've never been in a movie. You're not likely to be in a movie. And now you're not going to be in a movie. (laughs) I said, ah, yeah, right. I got the Scarborough in me came out for the Torontonians. And um, so Lauren said, well, if you feel that passionately about it, yes, which was great of Lauren and Paramount. And, uh, and, and it got in. But in this movie, I got a call. Do you want to be in a movie called Bohemian Rhapsody? You play the EMI executive that turns the queen and say, you can't have Bohemian Rhapsody on your album. And I was like, yeah. And they go, do you want to read the script? I'm like, no, not really. I'm in. You know? <laughs> Just <laughs> tell me when and what to wear. So, you know. If we get enough money through on our Patreon account... I want to buy a Mirthmobile <laughs> with a licorice dispenser. So cool. We're it- still paying off the summer hummers. Hang on, slow down. <laughs> Contractor, no. I will not bow to any sponsor. It's like people only do things because they get paid. Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. And speaking of trying to pay off summer hummers we we as as wayne's there's so many similarities between our little radio show and wayne's world when do you actually dig into it there are so many commonalities and one of those is we don't have sponsors we don't have advertisers sadly hello our friends at dosecki and mission corn chips tim <laughs> tim terms <laughs> dosecki <laughs> However, our Patreon page has been going really great. It it has allowed us to upgrade our equipment. It's allowed us to build a bigger audience, 78 countries across the world. And now we're trying to raise money to buy an outside broadcast, a pop-up 
outside broadcast kit that we can have our international guests who come to our fine shores here in Australia. We can take them down the beach and we can do a show with them. And uh, boarding the bus this week on Patreon, Matt and Stuart have and Ian have all contributed. So oh, if wow. you would mind just finding them a seat at the back of the bus, they're not, not the back seat next to AP, but somewhere towards the no, back of the bus. He's sprawled out asleep across it. And anybody who gets on board with Patreon, you can find us on the page there. A little bit more money, we could buy this outside broadcast kit. But we do the show because we do love doing what we do. We get access to amazing guests, but Patreon just greases the wheels and covers our costs and allows us to do some more fun things. And uh, so thanks to all the guys on Patreon. The Mojo Radio Show. So our guest this week is none other than Jay Ferugia. And I've been a fan of this guy for since we started the show. So for six seasons, I have been tracking this guy down. Jay Ferugia, if you don't know this guy, he's been helping people become the strongest version of themselves since the early 90s. Now, you know how you see all these posts and stories and blogs and videos of of the hardcore underground warehouse gyms and CrossFit and the guys are flipping tires, dragging sleds, pressing logs, using rings? Jay was doing that 20 years ago. And he's the guy that elite athletes and coaches turn to if they want to get squared away. And something else I learned about Jay is we talk about all these group fitness sessions we see in every gym in every part of the world. It's said that Jay was actually the guy who started all that. And he's only here on the show because a good friend of our show, a mutual friend of ours, another great guy, Chris Ashenden, who was on the last week of September on the show. Chris is the boss and founder of Athletic Greens. So because of that, Jay is with us today for October. Mate, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Jay, you've been helping guys, in your words, become the strongest version of themselves since the early 90s. So you've been you've been doing this a long time. What I'm curious about to start with is with all your experience now and what you're seeing today, describe to me the optimal psychology that we should take into our workouts today if we're looking for true health and wellness. How should we be thinking about exercise? I, I think it's more confusing than ever in 2019 because of information overload and we live in the age of distraction. But I think if you, if you think about what did people do, like what did Arthur Saxon do to get results in George Hackentrip back in, in 1906? You know, it's still, the human body hasn't changed that much. You still should do basic, simple stuff, not overcomplicate it. Because when you overcomplicate anything, like a business plan, a workout plan, whatever, the results tend to suffer, you get overwhelmed. So how can you simplify it as much as possible? And I would also urge people to train, you know, to improve athletic ability, to to be stronger, to be more well-conditioned, to move freely without pain, be more mobile. Because if you just train for more muscle gain, you're going to be frustrated all the time because even for a new, like a newbie can gain 30 pounds in a year. But for most people, muscle gain is a painstakingly slow process. So if that's all you care about is the size of your biceps or how much you weigh, like it's not, it's going to be frustrating and you're not going to be happy. Uh, fat loss happens a little faster. And certainly if you have a bunch of fat to lose for your overall health, not just how you look, you should, you should concentrate on that. But I think if you think of performance, you know, and what it does, what it contributes to your life, uh, how you can be more athletic, how you can be harder to kill. That, that's a better approach long-term. You're going to be happier, and you're going to get the 
kind of physique changes anyway, more so than if you just went into the bodybuilding program and all you're doing is, you know, putting a tape measure around your arms every week. How would you suggest we measure wellness and health today? Because I've heard you talk about the fact that as you get older, you're thinking differently about what you do. When you're talking to somebody, somebody you work with or some of the elite guys that you train, when you step back from it and you talked about measuring biceps or being cut or being huge, in your mind, how should we, at the core of it, how should we really be measuring the success of health and wellness for ourselves? Well, if you're not happy, then nothing else matters. So, I mean, I, maybe it's cliche or whatever, but I think that's, first and foremost, the the primary factor. Like, you you, you could have six-pack abs and, and do all this other stuff, but if, at the core of it, you're not a happy person, you're not really fulfilled, then I wouldn't say that that's true health and wellness. So I think that's an important thing is to kind of figure out what actually fulfills people. And a lot of people confuse achievement for fulfillment. And, and um, you know, you can look at people like like uh, Anthony Bourdain or, or Kate Spade or Robin Williams, and, and people would say, oh, they, they've achieved so much, but they weren't really fulfilled when we see the way it ended for them. And so, you know, true happiness is having, and, and, and health and wellness is having good relationships, being able to be present, um, being happy with who you are, how you look, you know, that, that kind of stuff is, is really the ultimate measure. And then, of course, you know, more for concrete stuff in the gym, are you getting stronger on a regular basis? Is, you know, maybe have some basic things that you compare. Like, it doesn't have to be a barbell squat, but have kind of measuring blocks for, for a push, a pull, a squat, a hinge. Are you getting better at that? Are you getting stronger on those? Are you able to do them with better form? Uh, and then, you know, maybe have some, some, some measuring sticks for your conditioning. You know, maybe it's a mile, maybe it's a 300 yard shuttle run. Maybe it's a time on uh, on the C2 rower or the air assault or something like that. It's good to measure things like that. Cause obviously what gets measured gets improved and uh, improves. You've got a photo of Bruce Lee on your wall and I've heard you make mention of Bruce Lee and his philosophies. And I want to ask you about, something you mentioned in an interview, and it was a saying from Bruce Lee, and he said, before I studied the art, a punch to me was just like a punch, a kick just like a kick. After I learned the art, a punch was no longer a punch, a kick no longer a kick. Now that I've understood the art, a punch is just like a punch, a kick is just like a kick. You've been doing this since the early 90s, and you made reference to back in 1906 and some of the greats that you studied because you, we bought a lot of books, you studied those guys. With all you know now, to be able to relate back to that period to now, what is, what is the punch or what is the kick that you've seen transition so many times, but you go, you know what? It's still this. What is that? It's like I'm, I'm smiling as you read that quote because I love that quote. And as, as, as you're reading it, I'm thinking about my own journey too and how true it is with, with so many things, you know, at the beginner, you have that beginner white belt mindset and you don't know anything. And then you realize, Oh, it's, now I know stuff. It's way more complicated than I thought. And then at the end, when you get closer to mastery and have more experience, yeah, you do, you do realize that ah, it's actually really simple. Again, it's just, you have more mastery of the basics. And so I, I think when it comes to fitness, it's funny. I've, I've tried so many different things. When I first started training, I did, I did like seven day a week, two hour 
uh, body parts split, and I got nowhere. And then when I was finally introduced to some of the old school stuff, I was doing three-day-a-week full-body workouts and getting amazing results. And they were super basic. There wasn't a lot of exercises in them. There wasn't a lot of fancy technique. And it's funny, after, I don't know, 30, 30-something years of training now, and 25 years doing it professionally, that's more of what I do. And I've gone through doing, you know, really complicated periodization schemes, uh, years of doing West Side Barbell kind of stuff, overcomplicating stuff just maybe out of boredom or maybe because I thought guys were super advanced. But it's funny, I work with pro athletes sometimes, and guys have been training for a long time or maybe not training for a long time. They're just at a high level, the pro athletes, and they really need the most basic stuff. And so I think, you know, just just bringing it back to, to really basics with exercise, like I'll still do push-ups in every workout. I'll still just do basic stuff in every workout. And I, I give that to most people, and I, I just think it's better. I, I think in any aspect of life, you know, the simple basics always work. When, you know, when it comes to business, for example, there's a million different things you can do, but if you really break down your business, there's a few things that are tried and true that you actually have to focus on. <clears throat> so, yeah, there, there's, there's so many examples of that. It's funny you mentioned, Bruce Lee, and as you were talking through your journey, it made me recount a saying from Bruce Lee that it's not the daily addition but subtraction. Hack away at the unessentials. Yeah. Now, something I hadn't expected is, is there is there an association for you? Because one of the books you recommend a lot is Essentialism by Greg McGowan. Did that come about because of your love of Bruce Lee and seeing that book and being attracted to it, firstly? That's, that's what I didn't expect to be asking you. And the second part is that based on that book, which is so important to you, what is a non-negotiable when you, what's absolutely essential for you every day when you walk in the gym? Yeah. I mean, I've always just been attracted to any of that, you know, Bruce Lee or uh, any kind of stuff about simplicity, minimalism, uh, Thoreau, you know, any of that stuff I've been attracted to. And essentialism is one of my favorite books. I reread it quite frequently. What's a a non-negotiable when I go in the gym? Uh, I try to improve in some way, but you know, as you get older, you got to listen to your body more and realize that that's not going to happen. But I could, I could usually figure out something where I could set some kind of weird PR or do something that I wasn't capable of doing before, whether it's conditioning or strength or, you know, maybe I just do a different variation of an exercise. I like to leave feeling like I accomplished something instead of just going through the motions. Do you know, it's really interesting hearing the work you do, the interviews you've done, Jay, is that you, you've really, it seems like in your journey, you've moved away from just being in the gym and about strengths and workouts. And now to your point at the start of this interview, you talked about the holistic perspective and something you were very, very keen and bullish on in your interview with Johnny Bowden, who is 72 years old. He was a, a guest of yours on Renegade Radio. This guy's a stud. At the end of the show, you talked about the commonalities of people who live a long and prosperous life. And, and you referenced the, the Blue Zones from Dan Butner, his book. And the two of you talked about connection as being one of the biggest uh, commonalities between people who live to be centurions and, and still, like Johnny Bowden, still getting after it. So with that, how, how do you choose your inner circle? How, how do you choose your inner circle and how do you maintain it? I, I Again, to kind of reiterate what you're saying, I think connection is, is the most important thing. And 
when you're focused only on yourself, like, oh, how do I look? What are my gains like in the gym? Uh, all these other things, you, you end up just being unhappy. If you just internally focus on yourself, then you can shift the focus to external and, and you know, how can you help other people? And, and you realize that, that we're social animals and we're, we're meant to be tribal or meant to have these really close connections. You'll find yourself just being happier. Like I said before, like you think it's, oh, how much money do I make or how do I look? But that really doesn't make you happy. So for me, once I realized that and I kind of got out of, you know, and, and, and naturally, I would say for 30 years, I was naturally introverted, 30 plus years. And so you, maybe you tell yourself that story and you write that narrative in your head. But just like anything else, you can you can work on fix that. Like you can go from skinny to being jack. <laughs> you can go from never playing the guitar to being really good at the guitar. You can improve anything. So I just worked on that, you know, getting out more, pushing myself out of my comfort zone, uh, going on meetup.com, going on volunteermatch.com initiating conversation with people, uh, making sure the ball was always in my court. So, you know, if I meet somebody somewhere and I want to develop a relationship with them, I'm not going to do what everybody else does, which is say, hey, it was great seeing you, man. Let's connect soon. Peace. And then it never happens. I'm going to take the reins. I'm going to get their contact info, their email, their phone, their social, whatever. I'll reach out within 48 hours. I'll set a date for us to hang out again. And that's why I've been able to build so many great connections and relationships and, you know, and, and it's changed my life dramatically. And so I guess what do I look for in people that, that I want to bring into the circle? It's, it's funny because we were having this conversation with friends the other day. Uh, you know, for me, sense of humor is, is probably the most important thing because everybody, everybody that you meet in life is going through a struggle. They have pain, they're suffering in some way, no matter how happy they look, like something's wrong. Everybody's got their own struggle. And so if you can bring laughter to them. I think that's the greatest gift. So I've always been a fan of, of Dave Letterman and, and Jerry Seinfeld and studied comedy and have taken stand-up. So I love being around people who are like that, people who appreciate humor, people who can bring humor. I just think it's, it's the best thing for us. And I, I even tell coaching clients, like at the end of the day, maybe you trained hard, you worked hard, you did all this stuff, but if you didn't laugh, consider it part of your daily routine or your daily homework to either meet up with some friends who are funny and will make you laugh or just pull up some stand-up comedy on Netflix or something. Like, you have to laugh every single day. That's part of being healthy. That's as important as eating the right food and training. So that's the thing. And then I just like people, and I think it's, it's human nature that everyone's going to be attracted to people who are passionate and energetic about stuff. Like if you're just kind of middle of the road, you don't have strong opinions, you don't get really into stuff, it's going to be harder to connect, you know, uh, for people to connect with you. Like when I'm with one of my closest friends recently, we discussed the second to last episode of Game of Thrones for over an hour. And then we discussed dessert because I'm like, you know, I grew up, I have the worst sweet tooth in the world. And I grew up a little fat kid. And so we talked about desserts and we just overanalyzed every dessert in the history of the planet for two hours. And they were all excited about it. And it's like, you know, I love people who are passionate and fired up and, that kind of stuff. So, and then of course, just being positive, like negativity, shit talking, uh, any kind of pessimistic stuff. You come up with a great idea and someone says, Oh, that's never going to work. Yeah. Not, not really great. Not a great way to build relationships and certainly not something that I want to be around. And I think it's, it's, it's important for people too to cultivate that in their own world. Like be aware of the people who are always gossiping and, and putting down your ideas or saying it must be nice. 
or something like that. Cause that, that kind of seeps into your subconscious and then you become like that. And the more time you spend around people who are the opposite, the better you get, the more successful you become, the happier you become. Improv was one of the things you stepped into and you said that doing improv brought out your weaknesses. What, what were those weaknesses for you, Jay? Just always being conscious of, I think everyone's making fun of me. I think everyone's, you know, uh, Everyone's worried about how I look or what I'm doing, and, and um, I'm not good at this. I, I can't speak in front of groups, and I'm really shy and socially awkward and insecure. And that was just a story I told myself long enough, and then I realized, wow, it's really not true. I, ca- I can do all this. Nobody cares. Everybody's nervous getting up there. And, and that's the reality of, of life every day. Like we all, at some point in your life, you're, sub- you're, you're conscious about something. You're self-conscious. You're insecure. We all stuff we're insecure about, and we think everyone else is noticing that. Oh, like look at that guy's hair. Look, look at his. Uh, like nobody cares really. Everybody has their own shit that they're worried about. They're so in their own head that they're not worried about you or thinking about you or making fun of you as much as they think as, as you think they are. And I think the reality is the opposite of of, of what most people think. It's that. Even though you see negative comments on a YouTube, you know, on YouTube videos and stuff like that, I think the majority of people want you to succeed. I don't believe that the majority of people are haters. I think the haters are that small percentage who climb out of their mom's basement and leave comments on social media. But the majority of people, if we if we went to the Staples Center at the Dodger Stadium right now and filled it with twenty thousand or fifty thousand strangers, and and me or you or anyone got up on stage and and was going to deliver a speech. The majority of those people, or anyone out of the fan, out of the stands, was picked to deliver a speech. The majority of those people want who's ever on stage to succeed. They're not going, "Oh my God, I hope this person fails. I hope they're terrible, so I can make fun of them." They want them to succeed because we're all public speaking is the number one fear. So if you can get up there, or if I can get up there, or Sally can get up there and do a good job, I'm like man, that shows me what's possible. That's awesome. That's inspiring. So I, I think it's the opposite of what, what most people think. Is it, Most people want you to succeed. It's interesting, Jay, you, you mentioned we all have our struggles. And quite often when you have a guest on a show, they look at that person and they're talking about the world they've got. And a lot of people would walk away going, well, it's okay for him, it's okay for her. Look at what they've got going on. It's all very well for them now. You You actually had your own struggles because – if I take you back, you grew up in a very violent, the way you described it, a violent household, and you said you were in fear where you had a dad who was cheating, there were fights, and you you were there was a lot of internal torment for you that came from the environment you lived in. How did you eventually face that and step into this, this J? Was there a moment? Was there a process? How did you eventually – have you left that behind – were you able to leave that behind? Yeah, it, it, it's a long, ongoing process. And I guess for so many years, I ignored it. I think, and I think that's a pretty common journey. A lot of people just want to forget about stuff and escape it and put it in the past, and kind of lock it up and you ignore it and you move on. And you can, I, I find that most people can either have one or two outcomes. You either become the situation in the environment you grew up in, or you become the exact opposite. And I always had that in mind that I didn't want, like I wanted to get as far away from that as possible. I didn't want to be someone or around someone who was confrontational and arguing and screaming all the time. I hate that kind of stuff, which is funny because to this day, like I can't watch 
the King of Queens or any kind of, even if it's a comedy where uh, a married couple is fighting and arguing all the time, like I physically can't watch it. It drives me nuts because I, I think it just reminds me of childhood so much. <clears throat> uh, so some of that stuff you take with you forever. And, but, but, I, but I just realized, you know, like at some point there's a lot of things from childhood. And this is only recently where I chose to address this stuff, you know, the last five to seven years where I chose to say, all right, I've been doing well in, in certain aspects, certain realms uh, of my life, but there's certain things I know that are holding me back. So how do I address that? How do I kind of dig deep on that? And, you know, I got into meditation, float tanks and plant medicine and, and trying to dig a little deeper and, and, and address that kind of stuff. And then I realized why I had a chip on my shoulder and why I do things to prove myself and why I had some of that anger. And the reality is I wouldn't trade any of that. Like it, I probably wouldn't be as successful as I am today and or maybe be where I'm at. Um, you know, I, I think everyone can take their hardships and, and, and turn it into fuel for success. And, and that's a good thing. I mean, some people can obviously use it in a destructive way. If that's the case, maybe, you know, you need professional help or do something else. But, uh, yeah, I think it was just choosing to address, okay, what are all the weaknesses I have? What are all the things that are holding me back? Why am I doing stuff? And then just digging deep on it and then having having conversations with myself and, and family members and, and also realizing, too, that it's me who has to change and it's you who has to change. Like, you can't expect your parents to change. You can't expect your wife or your husband to change or your friends. Only you can change. There's only, you know, like like Seneca said, you can only control three things, your words, your thoughts, your actions. And what's funny is when you master that, not that anyone ever masters it, but you get better at it, people around you start to change. But what I did in the beginning of this journey was I tried to tell everyone else what they were doing wrong and that they should change. And that's never going to go over. Nobody wants to hear that, especially people have known you your whole life, your siblings, your parents. Like That's the last thing they want to hear. But what I've what I realized is that if I lead by example – and I let people see that, hey, I don't get suckered into that negativity. I can't get conned into an argument now. I don't hold grudges. I don't gossip. Then all of a sudden, everyone around you starts to change. And you can kind of Jedi mind trick people to act any way you want. Like I, I talk to so many coaching clients, like, oh, how, how do I deal with my family when I go home for the holidays? And, and that's kind of what we work through is like, you, you can't. You can't do anything other than be the way you want to be. And that will lead them to reacting differently. Like my, my people don't gossip around me anymore. People don't talk negatively and complain and talk shit. And because they know I'm not going to tolerate it and I don't want to deal with it and I'm not going to join in. And then all of a sudden they feel like, Oh, we're maybe I shouldn't talk about this either. You've said that you still find yourself closing doors really quietly for fear of being heard, which came back to, as a, as a kid, you said you snuck around the house because you didn't want anybody knowing you're there because the the violence of the abuse may turn back onto you. So you, you, you became a ninja. Um, what do you fear today, Jay? When, when you look in the mirror of truth today, what do you fear today? I guess not, not, not being as good of a whatever it might be to people I love, you know, friend, son, whatever. Um, probably that. Probably like like if I if I was told I had just a few weeks to live, I would, I would go through the people closest to me and think, was I there for them in every way? Was I ever unavailable because I was caught up in my own head, my own problems? Uh, probably that. You've got 
a tattoo on your arm that says the word relentless. And you have referenced your dad, but you never really explained how your dad fits with that word. How does that relate back to your past and your dad? First and foremost, it's just that everything I do, I want to do to the best of my ability. I want to be the best at it. I want to get better on a regular basis. I want to chase the life I want relentlessly. And that doesn't mean, you know, just going to the gym or financially. It's like I said, being a good friend or, you know, whatever it might be, I want to get better and I want to pursue that. I think my dad was, he he used to work 24-7. So maybe he wasn't there for us as much as he'd want. And and also whatever we did was never good enough, was never great. You know, we had to, like, I, I, I joked around uh, plenty of times about saying, you know, I could get elected president. And he would say, well, why don't you win by a larger margin? You know, so, uh, <laughs> like, I really believe he would have said that. And so you know, nothing was ever good enough, and then and, and he was always busy. And, and that just forced me to work harder. And like I said, like, I'm not sad about it. I don't have sour grapes about it. It is what it is. It instilled that work ethic in me, which I'm happy about. And today, to this day, I have, you know, I have a really close friend that I run a business with, and, and he's very opposite in a lot of ways, where he's really content to just work four to six hours a day and just chill out. And every time, it, it's really good for me to be with him because I'm like, man, this is helpful for me because I envy you. I wish I could turn it off more and, and, and not be so relentless all the time. Uh, but again, I wouldn't trade it. I think it's, it's helped me accomplish a lot. It helped me get where I'm at. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of where it stems from. You said that growing up in a household was really hard when you wanted love, but you didn't get any love from your dad. And then you've got a photo of your stepdad, Ed, next to your bed. And you said you look at it every morning. In those quiet, reflective moments today with your past and where you are today, Jane, the success you have, when you when you look at that photo of your stepdad, Ed, what comes to mind for you? Just like happy memories and, and you know, so many fun times we had and jokes. And, uh, I mean, we, we used to laugh all the time and we spent a lot of time together. And he was always, and almost to a fault, maybe, and, and I understand why. Like, he was my biggest fan, and almost to a fault. When I say almost to a fault, I mean, like, sometimes maybe, you know, maybe he, he could have questioned what I was doing a little more, and maybe, but I understand, you know, it's, it's tough when you're kind of a father figure to, to someone you're dating. Like, but he, he and my mom never really got married, so he was unofficially my stepdad, but I get where there's, and, you know, I was older when they started dating, so... Uh, I get that it's a tricky situation for him, but, you know, looking back, maybe there were, there were times where he could have said, dude, maybe you shouldn't be doing this or that's a bad idea or stuff like that. But he was always our biggest fan. And, uh, so yeah, I, I just, I just think of happy memories and, you know, doing stuff that would make him proud. There's no doubt, Jay, hearing you talk about you and the circle you hang with and then hearing other people compliment you on how you've done that and the relationship you have. And you really, there's no question that you've got an A-grade circle and you work hard at keeping that circle. What's the single best thing that you ever started doing to create these outstanding relationships with others? I mean, you've got an amazing network. What was the single most important thing you did in that process? There's so many things, but if you wanted to say one thing, it's actually trying 
where most people will just say, oh, I don't have that many friends or I don't have any cool friends or positive friends or friends that are doing that kind of stuff. And I just sat there for years too. Look at everybody else with a cool full of friends. But are you actually trying? Like, that would be like if I sat home and said, I, I wish I could squat 315, but I never actually went to the gym. <laughs> but I think, that's, you know, that, that would be step one is to say, hey, you know what? These people aren't going to come to my door. Like, no one's knocking and saying, hey, let's go out. Let's go hang out. I'm a really cool guy. I'm a successful guy. You should come be my friend. Nobody's doing that. So you have to choose to do that. And where are these people? Figure out where they're at. Go to conferences. Go to events. If you have to invest in yourself, go to, you know, there's there's people that I was fans of that are good friends of mine now will come over if we have a, a, a UFC or Super Bowl party and vice versa. People that were fans of mine that were good friends now and, and people that were fans of mine that, that work for me now. And, and I've seen that across the board. You have to actually just consciously make the decision, hey, I want to start building a circle. These are people that I want to connect with. Like, people don't do that. Like, these are people that I want to be around, that I want to be friends with, so how do I do that? I'm going to pay – maybe I pay them for coaching. I pay to go to their, their events. I pay to go to whatever it is, to do an internship with them. And eventually you build a relationship with that person. And it could be – maybe it's not someone you follow. Maybe it's just – like, if you if you meet a cool – like, Jen will joke around that I can't go to the beach around here without getting a guy's number because I've met just a bunch of male friends on the beach here. Because we, I don't know, I just randomly started a conversation with people. And I'm like, hey, this is a cool dude. We should be friends. It's so unusual and uncomfortable for another straight guy to be like, hey, here's my number. Let's hang <laughs> out. But I know it's uncomfortable for everybody else, so I'm not going to wait for them to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm like, yo, me and this dude have a lot in common. Let's grab coffee one day. And and I have two super close friends, one of my closest friends. That That's how we met on the beach. And we joke around about our first date and all that. And, um... That's that's what you got to do. Is like be conscious and, and do it. This has led you to some pretty cool work, Jay. And I know you got a terrific opportunity to go and work with the LA Dodgers. And it turned, I think, it turned from like a day into five days. You obviously now have some great relationships within the LA Dodgers. What I'm curious about is that you started with doing this project. They said, "Hey, come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow." So you spent a fair bit of time inside the Dodgers. What did they teach you? If you walk away from that experience to go, I walked in to teach them something, but as a learned guy, you you probably took something away. What did they teach you? I, I try to learn something every day from everyone I meet. And it was a few years ago now, so I'm drawing a blank on, on lessons off the top of my head. I mean, Gabe Kapler is a brilliant dude. Uh, he's he's the, uh, the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies now. So I learned a lot about about how Gabe leads, you know, leadership qualities and how he carries himself and how he addresses people. So there were certainly lessons in there from Gabe and how Gabe got up and spoke in front of the group each day. Uh, Mainly leadership and coaching stuff, which is stuff I'm always trying to be better at and I think anyone can get better at. And, you know, this might sound egotistical or narcissistic or whatever, but it also taught me told me actually, dude, I'm pretty good at what I do. Like, you know, from growing up for so many years of always having the self doubt and always, you know, nothing was ever good enough. And I still deal with that today, of course. And I think, I think so many of us do, but I was like, at the end of the week, I walked out and I, I had been told by everyone that I made such a huge impact by one of the top five most illustrious 
sports organizations in all the planet, I would say. And I was, you know, I was really proud of that. I was like, man, you know, I, I, I'm pretty good at what I do. So it gave me more confidence going forward. I'll say that. One quote you talk about, Jay, is that you've suggested to people if they want to effect change, they should envisage the person they want to become. So in, in, actually envisage that person. And recently on the show, I interviewed Todd Herman, who wrote the book, The Alter Ego Effect, which is a cracking book. It was a great audio book, actually. And his interview was just terrific. Did you or have you ever created an alter ego where you can look at the person you want to become and you named it, you had this character, and you stepped into that character each day to get you beyond your own perceived limits? Have you ever used that process? So it wasn't a, a specific kind of character, but, I, but what I would do is I would envision that when I left the house in the morning, I would see music playing and there was a camera on me and I was just walking down the street like this invincible badass kind of character from a movie and I could hear my theme music playing and that was just something I would do on a regular basis because I was used to leaving the house not having a ton of confidence and not being, you know, kind of thinking that I was invincible and could do, do all kinds of things and, and, and be this, uh, kind of badass character. So <laughs> yeah, that was, that was practice for a long time. And I, I tell people to, to just envision somebody that makes it relatable, like you know, whoever it is for you, whether it's Muhammad Ali or Barack or it's, you know, whoever it is that you think epitomizes charisma and leadership and whatever, you, you know, characteristics you want to embody envision that person and play that role be that person you know maybe it's your cousin johnny or your friend that maybe that makes it even easier to relate to because you see that person all the time like how would this person act how would this person enter a role so if you're the kind of guy like i was go find a corner and hide out and just latch on to one person that you knew and not meet anyone else say okay what do i want to act like how do i want to interact with people what impression do i want to make and what is my goal like don't just go to a party or an event and just be there. Like, have a goal. Okay, I want to leave with, um, you know, a, a, a new friend, or I want to make this impression, or I want to get this business deal, whatever it might be. All, all that kind of stuff is important. Anyone who knows you would agree that music is a big part. A soundtrack is a big part of your life, and you talk about your favorite uh, artists a lot. If there was a track I could play for you that lyrically would be the best summary of how, who Jay is, what track would I play? If I, if I listened to it, I went, yeah, okay, now I, now I get behind the curtain. Now I know who this guy is. What's that track? Good Lord, what a question. Wow, that might be my favorite question ever. And You know what's crazy? I would, now that you're asking me that question, my entire weekend is ruined because I'm going to spend the whole weekend <laughs> thinking of the answer to that question. <laughs> Because I don't have a great one right now, but man, am I going to dig deep on that? Oh, I don't know. Ah, oh, gee. You can send it back to me. You know, I do play, there's a, <laughs> there's a couple of songs that I play on a daily basis on my morning mix. Like I play uh, Can't Nobody Stop Me by Royce the 5'9", just because it kind of gets me in that mindset. Um, I, play, I play My Shot every day. But yeah, I don't have a great answer there. I got to think of that. You've just built my playlist for me. That's cool. <laughs> you've, if we go back to tra- training, so you've got, you've got your tunes on and you are training. Something I'm curious about, you said, I always train to be ready 
What is Jay Ferrugia training to be ready for? I just like, you know, years ago I used to train in a way that with my back and hips and knees would always kill. I would be sore from head to toe. I would be, uh, I would have CNS fatigue and adrenal fatigue and whatever other kind of fatigue was humanly possible. And I would just be just totally wiped out. Uh, I didn't have good conditioning because all I cared about was being big and strong. And I was only strong because I was training more of a powerlifting style. So I ate myself up to way heavier than I should be. I was strong for, you know, a, a one rep max. Now I just want to be ready for anything. Like if someone says, hey, do you want to go uh, surfing? Yep, I could do that. The guy would say, oh, it's leg day or something weird like that. I'll say, yep, let's go. It doesn't matter what day it is. You want, to, you want to play hoops, you want to play tennis, you want to go for a hike, you want to go paddle surfing, something, uh, you know, an emergency happens, a fight breaks out. Like I don't want to be fatigued. I don't want to be sore. I don't want to be tight. I don't want to have shitty conditioning or not be able to move. So just I train in a way that kind of, you know, works toward all those goals instead of just like at the beginning of the conversation, we talked, we talked about just being, just look, just training to look a certain way. So I certainly don't do that anymore. Steve Jobs, obviously one of the great iconic creators of our time from Apple in his very, very well shared and viewed Stanford university lecture or his, his, his speech in 2005 prior to his death said, Death is very likely the single best invention of life. And then I heard you talk about a Native American saying, and the thing you said was, keep death close. Is that part of your conscious mind? Is that part of your standard operating procedure in Jay's mind, that that, that is something that drives you that you're conscious of? 100%. Yeah. I, I even want to get it tattooed like on my wrist to look at it all the time. But it is. And, you know, I, I think maybe some people think, like, oh, that sounds bleak and dark. But no, I think that's, that's a great reminder. Like, hey, man, what do you, you have very limited time. It could be over tomorrow. Like, how are you going to spend that time? What do you want to be remembered for? What do you want your legacy to be? And what are you wasting time on? Like, do you want to waste time sifting through email all day or on social media or, you know, sitting in your, in your room and not going out because you're insecure or whatever? You have to remember it's it's coming, it, you know, father time and like it's undefeated. Like the reapers coming for all of us. It could be thirty years from now. It could be eighty years from now. It could be uh, eighty hours from now, which would be terrible. But uh, you have to know that. And so I think that's the idea. Come to day, that that helps you make better decisions. What do I want to do? What do I want not to do? Is this a waste of my time? And uh, yeah, I think it's powerful. It's such a pleasure interviewing people who walk the talk, Jay. And I've heard you, you're very learned. You quote a lot of books. It seems to be an important part of you of books and podcasts. Is there a way that you catalog this stuff or you record it? Well, I will say that the most amazing human being I've ever met at retaining stuff is, is, is my, one of my best friends, Luca Hostobar. I don't know how he does it. It blows me away. Uh, and my friend, my friend Mike DeSanti, who actually both of those guys are always guest speakers at all my events. But what I do is, and what I would suggest, if I had to go back, I mean, I can't tell you how many hundreds of books I've read at this point in my life, but if I had to go back and do it over, I would read far fewer books, and I would read them over and over again and just master. Like, if anyone on the planet mastered 10 books, and you could teach the lessons in 10 books, you would be, like, one of the most mind-blowingly smart leaders and, and teachers 
But I think sometimes we just race to consume information. And nowadays there's so much information. You want to read every book. And it's physically impossible unless you're some kind of genius with a photographic memory. So what I've done recently in, 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 in the last few years is I've read way fewer books. And I'll read them multiple times. And then what I do is I, I always highlight. I highlight up the book. But at the end, I'll go through, I'll reread the highlights. And then I'll say, okay, let me narrow these highlights down to two pages. So then I could type them up on two pages and then I'll do a double-sided print, print it out and laminate it and just keep a collection of like my favorite books and like just one laminated sheet, a one uh, two-page sheet of highlights from each one. And then I'll just go through those and review one of those in the morning. And the other thing I think that helps a lot too is as soon as you finish reading a new book, not only reread your own highlights, but teach it to somebody else. So maybe write a blog post about it, tell your friends about it, uh, talk about it in a podcast, uh, teach it to coaching clients, whatever it might be. Like, you know, here's some stuff I learned. And the more you can vocalize it and reiterate it, the more likely it is to stick. Speaking of books, I'm going to put a few things together here. I recently read Pat Flynn's book, How to Be Better at Almost Everything. And he talked about skill stacking and how skill stacking can make you a generalist and you become basically 80% good at lots of different things, which gives you a lot of strings to, to pull at when you're creating. And reading that book and hearing Pat talk about it, and then if I look at you, you're stacking comedy. You're very well known for your business now, improv, strength, spirituality, relationship building, networking. I mean, you've got a lot of skills that you're stacking on top of each other. Is that a conscious thing that you do where you find something on the fringes and then step into it? Or is it just an organic thing that's happened without any conscious thought? Uh, a little bit of both. I think that uh, I could look at both sides of the coin here where you, you have to realize in life, like you can't have it all. You have to choose what you want. You can't be a master of everything. You can't have everything you want in your life, all the people, all the relationships, all the experiences. Like you have to choose certain things. You have a limited amount of time and a limited capacity. So people who are unhappy and unsuccessful, I think a lot of times they get caught up trying to do everything, trying to consume everything. So you have to choose and cultivate and then you know, be a kind of purveyor of 80-20. That's important. Uh, me, I, I appreciate you saying that. I don't feel like, um, I feel like the, the, the things that I have gotten good at are just things that I'm passionate about. So I think it's easier. I, I think if you try to accumulate a bunch of skills and stuff you're really not passionate about, that you wouldn't do for free, that's not a hobby and it doesn't enrich your own life. It, it's probably, you're probably never going to get really good at those things. And it's always going to be a struggle. Uh, you know, like I think back to when I was in school and I hated school and I was the worst student and I was forced to go to all these classes that I had no interest in. Whereas if I could choose, like if there was classes in those four or five things you just mentioned, I would go every day and be super excited about it. Uh, so I think, yeah, you know, if it's something you really love and you're passionate about, but I, I would say don't try to be, to do too many things because then you will be a master of none. Uh, and I've gotten caught up on that. Like, there's a lot of things I want to do. Like, I, I want to be really good at three different instruments and, and do all these other things and learn all these different languages. But I have to be realistic with myself. Like, there's just not enough time. 
and uh, man, maybe I'm not smart enough. I know I'm not smart enough. To do so you know what I mean. So you have to be uh, honest with yourself. You mentioned the Stoics earlier in the show. What's the greatest lesson you've taken from Stoicism, or what's the one saying? phrase from stoicism that is at the core of your soul i i think it's just that one that i mentioned before was you know there's only three things you can control your thoughts your words and your actions and so try not to get too caught up in circumstances that you can't control what people are saying that you can't control what people are doing that you can't control you know you just control what you say what you think and what you do and then you know the chips fall where they may if you're doing the right thing then you, at the end of the day, you know, you can be okay with yourself. If we loop this, I'm going to let you go now, but if we loop this right back to where we started and we started in the gym, there's a quote that I've heard you talk about, and, and for you, you said in your words, it's very profound for you that Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger said, it, start, it all starts in the gym. Do you still believe that today, Jay? I do. If I don't train every day, I will have a ton of anxiety and stress. I won't feel as good. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I need that. I think, you know, for everybody, maybe it's different, but I do like pushing myself physically, you know, trying to overcome, trying to get better. Uh, I think there's so many, there's so much symbolism there with the struggle and the strain and the strength and sweating and getting out of your comfort zone. And yeah, so, so for me, that, that's a non-negotiable. I, I got to do something like that every day. It's really funny, just to close this out, you said before that maybe you're not smart enough, and it's something you've talked about. You've, you've actually written that you've got no special skills, do nothing exceptionally well. You were a D-plus to C-minus student. You got under 900s on your SATs. And in your words, you said, I'm far from being the smartest guy in the room. You've had great success you are very, very well respected. You have got a, a, a stellar reputation. What would you, if you went back and had another crack at all that, what would you do differently? I, I was just such a terrible student because I didn't see the value in this. Because I was, I guess, maybe smart enough to realize, like, dude, I'm never going to learn. Like, I'm never going to use any of this in the real world. Like, somehow I just had the foresight to know in 2019 that the internet would be around or whatever. Like, I was like, I'm never going to use this. Why are you teaching me useful life skills? But what I would have done probably was I would have for sure been different about the way I interacted with my classmates and started building my relationship skills way earlier in life. I would have tried to solve problems because they don't teach you how to build relationships in school. And that's one of the most essential things. They don't teach you how to solve problems. You just memorize stuff. And that's one of the most essential things, especially for a kid coming out of school today. They don't teach you leadership. So I don't know what I would have done differently to be a better leader back then. Maybe just, you know, figure out things about the way I carried myself, the way I acted. But uh, and and I would have been way. It's funny because you know now I do read so much and consume so much information. Back then I didn't. So I think if I could, if I could go back and say like to young Jay, like dude, there is value here. Like even though half of these classes are a waste of time, there's some stuff that's really important, and I I'd probably spend two hours a night studying and, and reading the stuff that I knew was going to be of, of real value, and maybe even like Mike DeSanti, my friend who I've mentioned before, he was reading Thoreau and. Native American uh, tracking guides and all kinds of stuff when he was 12. You know, I don't think I read my first book until I was probably like 
Well, I was reading training books, but about, beyond training, I don't think I read a book until I was 26 or 27, you know? So I, I wish I could have gone back and, and gotten into that stuff earlier for sure, yeah. Stefan, it's such a good point. We don't teach kids at school about building relationships. We teach them to be nice to each other and stuff like that. Yeah. But the actual skill that is the core of right. pretty much anything we do in life is building relationships with either customers, clients, each other, people sitting on the board. Yet that's such an interesting thing. We don't teach that at school. And I'll tell you what's scary nowadays, mm -hmm. so many kids don't have the skill set of face-to-face -face interpersonal communication. I mean, they get it at school, but then the majority of times they're just sitting there, it's all digital, it's all text, it's all emojis. And so when they're going for job interviews, they're going to work in an office with other humans. It's like, yeah, I'm not used to this. So I, I, I think parents are, something's got to change. I don't know. Jay, I'm very conscious of your time. Uh, I've been looking forward to interviewing you for a number of years. It was a complete privilege, mate. I could honestly talk to you for hours about stuff. I've got another couple of pages we haven't even got to yet, but I'll respect your time. Thank you for joining us on the show. Where do people go to dig into your stuff, your blog, the work you do, uh, the show you host, where's the best hub for you for everything? Uh, just if you go to j.fit, j-a-y.fit, you probably, probably find everything there. Uh, and then my Instagram is jferugia, renegaderadiopodcast.com. Thank you for joining us. I've got to say, it, it's it's been a real honor. Thank you. It's been awesome. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Super fun. Right. But if he honks in the car, I'm giving you a no-honk guarantee. If you're going to spew, spew into this. The Mojo Radio Show. We traditionally, to shake our little format up for Rocktober, like to have a little musical interlude. Uh, we've decided we will have an acoustic set each week of this Rocktober. What do we have this week lined up for acoustics? Well, we've got a guy, an Australian guy, well-known Australian guy called Joe Camilleri doing uh, Van Morrison's Brown Eyed Girl. But the other thing I've tried to do, don't know if you've noticed, Gaz, but I've tried to include a little bit of a, a story in each week's acoustic. This week, the story goes that Joe turned up at the studios at Triple M with a full band. I'm talking trumpets, saxophones, keyboards, you name it, he had it. And Joe he loves is a good a, sax. He loves, he a, loves good a good sax. And he's also a particularly <laughs> fussy artist, but in a good way. I mean, he, I learned things from Joe that I still use just from half an hour in the studio mm -hmm. with him. But the story is that everybody turned up with their gear, but the drummer sheepishly walks into the room while Joe's heading up and goes, I've got no drums. <laughs> so in his hand he has his drumsticks but nothing else. Bit of an issue. But anyway, 10 minutes later he's sitting on a milk crate with a guitar case and a drum kick pedal in front of him and a plastic rubbish bin which he turned into his drum kit. Now, Joe is the pickiest artist on the face of the planet and you could see the disappointment on Joe's face. Long story short, we finished recording. Joe walked out. He was so happy with it he took a copy of the recording with him as he left the room. So the story is, well, I guess the moral is, hey, you know, things might go wrong, but you adapt, you overcome, and sometimes gold comes out of it, I suppose. What guest is about adapting and overcoming? Pop quiz, hot shot. Can I have five minutes to go back through the back catalogue? Ja Jason Ferrugia? Jason J. Redmond, shot in the face in Afghanistan. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yes. he said, I'm the overcome oh, guy. Yeah. Adapt and overcome. There you go. Well, this is a classic example of that. Yeah, well, we go. Days when the rain came down at the hollow. 
playing a new game Laughing and rolling, yep Skipping and jumping Yelling Mr. Morning Fog Oh, you know you got my heart thumping Yes, you My brown-eyed girl Hey! Yes, you're mine Say whatever happened Tuesdays are oh, so slow Going down to the old man With a transistor radio Running a lap in you Hiding behind a rainbow wall Slipping and sliding you yeah. All along the waterfall <laughs> With you My brown eyed girl Yes, you're mine, brown-eyed girl Do you remember when we used to sing? Sha-la-la-la-la-la-la-la La-la-la-la to talk Everybody singing Sha-la-la-la-la-la-la-la La-la-la-la to talk So hard to find my way Now that I'm on my own I saw it just the other day Oh child, how you have grown And I cast my memory back then, Lord You know sometimes I'm overcome thinking about it Making love in the green grass Behind the stadium With you My brown-eyed girl On the Mojo Radio Show. One of the things that I take when I hear people like Jay Ferrugia, and this does relate back to something that Cameron Schwab, a guest of ours on the show a couple of weeks back, talked about is how do you curate the learnings and then put them into your world? An example, because Jay just dropped a load of gold. An example of that was I got a note from a guy called Tom, who is a developer, and he had listened to Evan Hafer from Black Rifle Coffee Company and Matt Best, both get former guests of the show only weeks ago. And Black Rifle Coffee Company have a, 
a very clear mission inside the company and also outwardly focused through all of their stuff, which is to make premium coffee for people who love America. And Tom's done that and he now wants to build housing for those people who are underprivileged, who are at the wrong end of the straw, who don't get the help they deserve. And what I take from that is I just love it when people take something from a show and then transfer, because all these things are transferable. It's just how do you capture them and then do something with it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. I've probably noticed it a bit myself. I've I've taken a bit of an interest in Japanese rugby lately, funnily enough, but um, they've got themselves a new coach, a guy called Jamie Joseph, who took over from another well-known coach, a guy called Eddie Jones. But Jamie used to play for the All Blacks and tying that back to the Mojo show, thinking about James Kerr and his book Legacy when we spoke to him. Jamie's transferred, obviously, the skills that he learnt at the All Blacks in terms of discipline and the way they play in the game and taking that to Japan with him. And Japan are just killing it at the moment. So I, I think that's another perfect example of transferring, you know, skills and, and things we've learnt from one place to another. Well, there's a bigger piece with Jamie Joseph because he played with the Highlanders and then played the All Blacks, but he's transferred not just the skills part of it. Mm. Yes, that that is a very, very important part of it. I think above and beyond that, what's also transferable is the culture. And to have a culture with the All Blacks have an 80% winning record for 100 years and they have a rock-solid culture, which you'll read about in James Kerr's book Legacy that you mentioned. Imagine taking that and saying, okay, let's go into another team in a different country, different language, different everything. Let's create a culture there. Mm. Not the same, but take transfer the thoughts, the, the means to be able to do it the questions to answer. The basis of it. And I think that's what this guy who's listening to the show, our listener, has done. And I think that's what Japanese rugby perhaps are doing. And then you look at teams that aren't going so well and they're probably not doing it. So the reason for, I think, this part of it is that all the stuff we talk about and look to draw out in our show is transferable stuff. The question is how do you curate it? How do you learn it well enough to be able to go and execute it, but then going and doing something and knowing that all the stuff we talk about here is transferable? And it's, I think it's gold. Do you reckon the actual process of transferring it is something that you can just go out and do? Or do you reckon that's actually something you've got to work at as well? Oh, you got to work at it. The, the coach of the Japanese rugby team, uh, there was a story about him and he said that he'd been working for nine months nine months in preparation for the moment where they started to execute. So it, it's, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy and it takes work. But before all that, you've got to take the learning, then sit down and say, oh, it's, all, it's all fine for Jay Ferrugia. Oh, it's all fine for Rob Wolf. Oh, it's all fine for Evan Hafer. It's all fine for those guys. It's all fine for James. I'm not them. But we focus as Logan Gilbrick, who is on our street poster with gold, is don't focus on the outcome. Focus on the process. So what's transferable is the process, the questions you ask, the process, the time you put into it, the disciplines. That's the bit that's transferable and don't get caught up on the outcomes. But we, we compare ourselves to the outcomes and go, I could never do that. But what we don't go is, well, if we if we execute properly, the process is the outcomes take care of themselves. To close our little program for week three on Rocktober, I've got to say, as I said at the head of the show, there are so many commonalities with Wayne's World and our little program. This is Dana Carvey talking around, and this is this is not what you'd expect 
behind a movie like Wayne's World. Here's Dana Carvey talking about philosophically how did they approach the movie. We weren't just cavalierly making a film and we weren't thinking about money or fame, I swear. No, we're not interested in money. We all love movies so much and the fact that we're honored enough to be on a soundstage with a camera recording our antics. Uh, I mean, nobody was lazy. Everybody was trying to do their absolute best. And, um, you know, I think Mike's obsession with detail and his... his uh, work ethic, you know, really kind of was the rocket propellant for the movie, you know. I love that. But the other thing that I reckon's obvious in Wayne's World is they just wanted to have a good time on top of all that. Well, sitting underneath it, the thing that I relate to the most for our show is he said it was just an honour to be on a film set to do a movie. And we feel exactly the same way we have a Jay Ferrugia or a Chris Ashenden or a Evan Hafer or a Jay, anyone we've talked about. It's an absolute honour to have them on the show. And as he said about his partner, Mike Myers, Wayne Campbell, he said he was there every day to do their absolute best and that's all they wanted to do. And they said it wasn't about the money. It was just about doing great work. And I think that comes through in the show in lots of different ways. And it essentially is how we've put this program together. I mean, right for six seasons, it's just been about great guests doing great work, making it fun, making it sound awesome. But it certainly hasn't been about the cash. No. I think for us, to, to, to paraphrase an, another quote we throw around here a lot, is it, it's about the mission for our show, isn't it? Absolutely. As opposed to being about anything else, really. Sweet. I'm on it. We're out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of The Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime... To polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.